Please go ahead and open and join with me in the book of Acts, chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 23 through 31. While you're turning there, just a couple of introductory comments. We spent much time considering many truths concerning the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We have spent time considering many right and sound and vital and necessary doctrines concerning the third member of the Godhead. And if after we have spoken much of his personhood, spoken much of the baptism of the Spirit, his filling, his sealing, the gifts, mortification, vivification, the pastorate, missions, church planting, the inspiration of the Scriptures, the illuminating work of the Spirit. If after we have filled our mind rightly with these eternal truths from the full counsel of God's Word and have not yet been spurred and encouraged and emboldened to walk in light of them with a great hope, then what a tragedy it would be to have so much within reach and to avail ourselves of none of it at all. I will make one statement, and then we will get immediately to our text. The Holy Spirit is He who has been given to us by the Christ, who promised not to leave us comfortless, who promised to leave us not without help, not without advocacy, but said that he would send another of the same. And it is this promise of the Christ to us by which the individual Christian and the church is empowered and enabled not only to live the Christian life, but to assault the kingdom of darkness and spoil it of those souls that have been elected from the foundation of the world. And it is that self-same spirit that enables us to display and make visible the unseen Christ of whom the world does not believe. And it is the spirit that effectually opens doors and enables the powerful advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. This is our hope. This is our power. This is our promise. And this is the guarantee that the church will march triumphantly and victoriously, even through death, into the arms and then the eyes and the presence of our Savior. Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The king of the earth 
The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. May the Lord be pleased to add his blessing to the reading of his word and let us seek his face once more. O great Father of our God and King, Christ Jesus, Lord, we ask that you would glorify your holy child, Jesus Christ, now in the sight of your saints, and give us great understanding and great boldness in the proclamation of this Christ, that we would not go without any of the precious promises which you say in Christ Jesus are ours and are yes and amen. Let us be fully persuaded that you have given us all things that pertain unto life and unto godliness. And then let us never rest in never giving you rest until that power of which we have great need of is ours in increasing and greater and fresh measures. In Christ's name, amen. I heard it once said, and it stuck with me as a young believer, that if you were to take away the work of the Holy Spirit from the church in the book of Acts, 99% of everything that was going on and everything they were doing would have come to an immediate and screeching halt. And after a pause, he said, and I suppose, at least for the church here in the West, if you were to take the Holy Spirit away from the vast majority of the noise and the busyness that we attend to, 99% of everything that we do would go on unaffected. When you read the life that attended the early church, you read about a cutthroat, do-or-die, serious issue where you have an infantile church who was 11 at the ascension, 120 in the upper room, and 3,120 by one sermon. And by the operation of the Spirit that was with them, enables them to be able to preach this gospel of Christ profoundly in such a way that it fills up the city of Jerusalem with their teachings, and they are inevitably accused, these few, of turning the world upside down. These were men who had no deep pockets, no social influence, no clout, no great military strategy, no sword, no army, no weapons whatsoever to speak of. The weapons of their warfare were not carnal. But as it says in 1 Corinthians, they were mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. When you read about the life of that early church, what is profound 
And my estimate when I read it is not so much the peculiar manifestations of the inauguration of the church or uh, that period of time in which there was a, a, a very evident uh, certification of, of what was taking place, a credentialing of the church. But it was the power, the transforming power that attended the individual lives of those saints, the unity that was wrought, the love that they manifested, and the incredible, unspeakable, holy boldness that attended their proclamations of the gospel. Amen. That enabled them, as one hymn writer wrote, to mock the cross in flame. To face the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane, who bowed their necks their death to feel. And then the hymn writer follows, who follows in their train? Here we see a moment of great trepidation, great weakness, great fear, a low point for just a moment, as it were, in the life of the saints. This is after Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. The church is, is already swelled from the 3,000 that were added. These are the saints of God, and that is the foundation that must be understood with the context to which we are looking at here today. We are not looking at the unregenerate. We are looking at those who have believed upon Christ. We're looking upon those whose God's grace has come into their lives. They have been baptized with the Spirit. They have been filled with the Spirit. They have received of the Spirit of Christ salvation, regeneration, a new heart, a new mind, a positional sanctification, and an ongoing progressive sanctification. These are those in whom the work and the operation of the Spirit is with them. They are sealed. They are clasped and clutched tightly in the hands of their king, and there is no threat of them being lost. What there is threat of at this moment is the fear of the world, the fear of persecution, and the fear of the cowardice in their own flesh. And in this hour of weakness that has come about, interestingly enough, on the back of a rather extraordinary miracle that has taken place in the land of Israel, which we will look at here in just a moment. But as, as you see here, they petition, they, they quote Psalms chapter 22 in this fearful moment. And in quoting Psalms 22, they are looking to the promise in Scripture that there is this Christ who, though the, the nations rage, though the the Gentiles take counsel together, though the rulers take counsel together, though the leaders of the Jews take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, yet he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. It is as though the, the darkest, unseen, subliminal conspiracy strategies are all very much true. They are in cahoots. They are working together behind the scenes in the dark where no one sees. They are whispering and trying to do everything they can across party lines, as it were, even reaching into the hands in the back pocket of Rome and vice versa to do all that they can to thwart the very anointed one of God. And it's as though he who sits upon heaven's sovereign throne looks and beholds with a kind of almost humor, as it were. He beholds. He says, what is this? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh at their strategies, at their machinations, and at everything they're doing and conspiring within the power of their flesh and in their human capability. He looks, and it's nothing in his sight. And he laughs. And he says, he shall have them 
in derision. He shall have them upside down, confused, in tumult, and unsure of themselves. Those who had the insider scoop on everything that they were doing in their program, as it were, and how they were to get rid of this issue of the Christ, how they were to deal with this one who every moment that he preached was causing their self-righteousness to dissolve like snow in, in a blazing hot Florida summer day, who embarrassed them where the shame of their nakedness did appear to their generation, where they were found out to be blind guides leading the, the, the blind who were leading them to fall into the ditch and who themselves would stumble, those who strained at gnats and swallowed camels, who devoured widows' houses and for a pretense made long prayers. They were ready to be rid of the Christ. His sterling righteousness was unlike anything that they had dealt with. And the more he preached and the more they beheld the righteousness of God, the more their shame was open and the more in their flesh they were propelled to undermine their own blessed hope the promise of the Redeemer and the Messiah, who according to the promise given to Abraham 2,000 years before, was their great hope and their great answer even to Adam's plight, the great deliverer who had crushed the head of the serpent and set them free. And they look upon him and there's no beauty in him that they should desire him. And they turn, as it were, their faces from him. They hide their faces and they look away. And when they do look, it is only to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. The world is at war with Christ. And here the disciples are feeling something of the reality of that playing out in real time in their homeland. And in a moment of weakness where they find what will truly be the rest of their lives. Warfare, at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. They do what any sane Christian would do. They felt their weakness and they hit their knees. And they looked up to heaven and they cried for help and for the power and the presence and the confidence and the enablement of the supernatural power of Almighty God. What we see in the early church was absolutely no confidence in and of themselves. What, they, what we see in them was an absolute and total and assured confidence in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And as they go, they look and you already see in their praying an evident work of the spirit of prayer at work in them. You see the Scriptures being called to mind. You see in verse 27, acknowledging the reality of the Word of God in their own context. And they're saying, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You see, even in their fear, even in their weakness, even as the apostles have been threatened, the church has been threatened, they've been called to preach in this name no longer. And even as Peter has rebuffed the, the highest leaders in the land uh, you see to it whether it's right to obey God or to obey man and to leave that stinging rebuke at their feet to deal with only to come back and recognize the way forward will be a little bit harder there in that weakness the spirit is enabling them to pray and we know this promise in Romans chapter 8 that the spirit helps 
with groanings which cannot be uttered. It is like unto the Simon of Cyrene who comes up underneath the cross of Christ, carrying his cross up to the place where he will be crucified. There you find those who follow in the train of that king who are called to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow after him wheresoever he goes. Due to the weakness in our flesh and the buffeting of our flesh, we find we don't have strength to bring it up to the hill. And there this one, this parakletos, this one who comes along beside, gets up underneath and groans with us in a sympathetic groaning with our weaknesses, enabling us to pray and to cry heavenward and bringing the scriptures to mind when we don't know how to pray, when we don't know what to say, when we don't know where to go in our prayers, when we don't know what the right text is, when we don't know what wisdom would dictate in our peculiar seemingly situation. And all we know in that moment is God is sovereign. He has appointed all of these things. And this is according to whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And in there, there is an assurance and the spirit begins to guide and direct us and to settle our feet upon who we know to be even if we don't understand the nature of the circumstances we are in. It's as that verse, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And that verse stands true in our hearts when all around us, as the hymn goes, in the midst of the storm, our soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. Here, the spirit of prayer is bringing to them what will be their greatest need that they ought to pray for. And it is in that prayer that I want to look at. I want to see how the Lord so marvelously answers this prayer and empowers his church and settles their eyes and their focus on Christ in the gospel, that this is their greatest need, hope, desire, and ambition. They cry out, grant that your bondservants may speak your word in all confidence. That's what they prayed for. Consider for a moment how often, even in our own prayer meetings, those of you who are involved in world missions, uh, we understand and we know something at a, at a distance of what it means for the church to be under uh, critical persecution. But there are men in this congregation seated here today who know exactly what it means to have the government thwart, resist, confine their members, arrest, chase, outlaw, and do everything in their power to stop the forward spread of the gospel, to illegalize proselytizing and evangelizing, and who take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed to this day. And we are tempted often at times, and it would be very normal to us to simply pray, Lord, lift the persecution so that we can continue to do what we need to do. Lord, here are these chief priests. Here's the house of the high priest, Annas and, and Caiaphas, Ananias and Caiaphas. Here, look, Lord, the, the Sanhedrin is against us. Look, all the rulers of Israel are against us. Lord, just, just move them out of the way, change their heart, and let us move forward. Lord, take the pain away. Lord, make this easy. Father, look at the situation and just calm the storm. Here, their prayer is strangely absent all the normal petitions that would be right to pray. 
It is right to pray, Lord, help us. It is right to pray, Lord, bring Paul-like conversions to the leadership. And those who resist us, bring them alongside that they may aid us. But if not, take them out of the way. These are right prayers. But there's something about the hidden wisdom of God, the hidden wisdom of the Spirit, that was absolutely essential and vital, not only to the life of this infantile church here, but vital and indispensably necessary to the ongoing life of the church today. They didn't pray for the problem to be taken out of the way. They prayed for the boldness to be able to face it head on to the glory of the King, come what may. They prayed for an ability to know something of the sufferings of Christ. You remember Paul's prayer that I might know him in the fellowship of his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection? That self-same spirit was at work in the church here, acknowledging the resistance, acknowledging the difficulty, but desiring in the face of it a boldness to face the threat ahead. And brothers and sisters, I want to say that boldness is an absolute attribute of virtue that should belong in increasing degrees to everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. You will be resisted first in your homes, among your friends, among your co-workers, in political situations, even in your own churches. Standing for Christ will cost you something. And if you don't learn soon what it means to have a little concrete poured in your spine and to be able to stand up with your eyes squarely set upon the Savior and like Him set your face like flint come what may. You will be tempted to cower down before a world that ultimately, in the final scheme of themes, actually has no power over you at all. Amen. Don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. The one whom we serve is infinitely superior and greater than all the threats of which we face in this life and in this world. And if God be for us, who can be against us? He who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Yes, the whole world lies in the wicked one, but the fashions of this world are quickly passing away. Yeah. The church ought to know something of the virtue of boldness. It should mark increasingly the life of the church. The Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us in, in this way. And the, the saints are being led to pray in this direction. I just ask you to consider for a moment, as we do consider the, these wonderful truths about the indwelling of the Spirit. As we talk about, as one speaker spoke, and I, I wish I could remember who it was. There was just so much good content, and I, and I don't remember where to source it. But that you see... The spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwelling in you, according to Romans chapter 8. And we know that the spirit is, is in, in reference there. We see the spirit of the Father. We see Christ in you, the hope of glory, the spirit of Christ. We see the Holy Spirit. The very essence of the Trinity is at work and alive and empowering each and every believer. We see this profoundness at work but sometimes when we when we acknowledge these truths that are honestly so high and so wonderful and too high to grasp we walk in a way that tells on us that it is a little too high for us to grasp and we have not gone to the throne of grace and say lord make this power understood and known to me in an increasing measure that i may have the grace of which you promised consider peter Consider Peter, just for one moment. Look at who it is they're particularly persecuting in this situation. This is Peter who stood before the leaders of his nation, the highest-ranking government officials in Israel, 
The religious leaders, the one who had the power not only to cast you out of the synagogues, but as we saw with Christ, even with their political ties, could have you imprisoned and killed. And this Peter points his fingers at the most educated men in the land, stands them up, undresses them with the scripture, tells them of the Christ of whom they crucified, and says, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Look at the power of which Peter speaks. And keep in mind, Peter is not some grand, great intellectual. He didn't graduate with a PhD from some higher seminary of of the, the Galilean outcoasts. This was a rude fisherman. Look at the three years of which he followed Christ. A whole lot of time has not went by yet for Peter. It was not all that long ago he cowered down before a handmaiden. He said, aren't you a Galilean? Aren't you one of his disciples? Shaking, scared, cursing, saying, I don't even know the man. Scared to death of a handmaiden. Now with his finger pointed at the highest ranks and officials in the land. A man whose only education was three years of walking with Christ and very often being corrected and rebuked. A man who would speak faster than he thought oftentimes. A man who holds the high honor of being the only one in Scripture we read about who was rebuked by the Father speaking out of the most excellent glory when he put his foot in his mouth on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son, hear ye him. Because he thought to draw an equivalency between Moses, Elijah, and the transcendent son of God. And when he looked up from that rebuke where the son alone had unveiled something of his his glory, shined brighter than the sun, he looks down, and we all get a lesson here in the text. When he looked up, he saw no man save Christ. Peter, who ever impetuously trusting in himself, making mistakes, being rebuked by Christ, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense and savorest not the things of God. Preaches the Pentecostal sermon. And now is going to preach this sermon where he's pointing at these religious leaders and 5,000 are added to the church. Here is a man who knew what it meant to be a coward. Think of the night our Lord was crucified. Besides Peter cursing ever even knowing the Christ and denying him three times, all the disciples fled into the night at Gethsemane. It wasn't just him. Brethren, in Revelation, who were the first to go into the lake of fire that burns forever? There's a long list there. It's got drunkards, it's got sorcerers, it's got idolaters of all kinds. You know what the first word is? All cowards. All cowards have their place in the lake of fire which burns forever. 
what happened to these men? Here you have Peter denying the Christ three times. Three days later, Christ is raised from the grave, appears to Peter some time later, some week or two, into that 40-day period of ministry. Peter, do you love me? Three times back and forth, broken. He's recommissioned. Ten days after Christ descends, there he is full of the Spirit out there preaching like a man no one's ever met before. Matthew Henry says they felt the influence upon it, of it upon themselves. What a blessed change it had wrought upon them. It had brought them into a new world, and therefore they could not but speak of it. And those speak the doctrines of Christ best that have felt the power of it and tasted the sweetness of it and have themselves been deeply affected with it. It is a fire in their bones. They cried out for boldness. They cried out for confidence because they had seen what the Spirit had done. And if God could take one man who ought to have been numbered alongside Judas as an out-and-out betrayer of Christ, forgive him, cleanse him, renew his mind, strengthen him, fill him, embolden him, stand him up to preach and to tear the Sanhedrin down in the midst of everyone, then surely that's all the power we need. Give us that confidence, Lord, to stand before our generation unapologetically and testify of what we know to be true. Put concrete in my spine. Give me boldness. Enable me to see Jesus Christ more clearly than the thronging, angry, mad, passing crowd. Amen. Their prayer goes on, and as they pray, say, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you, now this is beautiful, it not only helps us a little bit with an understanding of the nature of the gifts, but look at who is in view here. They ask for themselves. Lord, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all power. But then they ask something of God that he to be doing something. He said, while you extend your hand to heal. Who's healing? God. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, the point I want to pull out of here is, is not so much the signs in and of themselves. If you missed our uh, breakout session on the gifts of the Spirit uh, by uh, Pastor Stephen Lewis, I encourage you to uh, go watch that. And he's here, so you can track him down. If you have any issues with the sermon, go talk to him. <clears throat> I want to point out not the signs themselves in so much as the glorious object to whom they do point to give evidence and magnify. Listen to that statement again. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're saying, Father, enable us, embolden us, that we may go with confidence, with faith, to stand boldly before this wicked and untoward generation. And Lord, while we are preaching, which is all we can do, with confidence, which is what we desire of you, Lord, do what we cannot do to make it very evident the Spirit of Christ is in their midst. Give evidence. Give evidence that even the unbeliever's mouth is shut. 
that they are going to have to have a confrontation with the Holy One of Israel, whom you set upon your holy hill in Zion, and you promised that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to your glory that you've made him Lord of all. Give evidence. Look at this example. This is what really kicked all this off in Acts chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Remember, Peter and John are going into the temple. There's a bit of a stir in one sense because the resurrected Christ has begun to appear to to, uh, numbers. He's appeared to as many as 500 at one time. But it's still in these hushes and whispers and there's this news going around. And yet there's this kind of peculiarity of what happens next. Christ descends for 10 days. The 120 are up in the upper room. We don't have any uh, indication that they're evangelizing. As a matter of fact, they're told not to go out, but to wait until they are endued with power from on high. After everything that they know, after everything that they've been taught, after three years of walking in step with the incarnate word of God, he tells them they're not ready until you've been endued with power from on high. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to Judea and to the ends of the earth. So they pray. Can you imagine the kind of, the, the hush, the strange, unusual hush after all the noise for three years, after all the noise, even after those 40 days, the strange hush that had kind of be fallen Israel, and you could almost wonder if the leaders were kind of beginning to be lulled into a false sense of, okay, I think the problem's over. I think the issue's over. Here comes Peter and John. Walking into the temple, there's been a little stir. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us, what's going on? Here is the man lame from birth at the gate, beautiful, asking alms for the poor. He's been doing this his whole life. You can't go into that grounds through that gate without passing by him. He's a regular feature. He's known. He's been there a long time. Imagine how often that man heard during those three years, we think the Messiah is here. This Jesus of Nazareth is a mighty prophet. He's doing signs and wonders of which we've never seen. He's caused the the dead to raise. He's he's giving the lame the ability to walk. The deaf are hearing. The blind are seeing. The lepers are being cleansed in Israel. I wonder if he wondered. Will he come for me? Ah, but the news has reached his ears. No, no, he's been crucified. He's no more. How do we find him? Alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. John and Peter passed through the gate. They fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. A man who had gotten used to living his life with his head down, with his cup up. Peter says, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold. Or as many as you probably know better, gold and silver have I none. But what I have I do give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. His ears perking up. The Nazarene. Walk. 
And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Immediately, there is a man standing up, praising and giving glory to God in the name of this one who had been going through Israel all these years performing these miracles. You think he's tucked away and he's out of sight. Now the name is there in the temple, and this man's walking. And there is this stir that explodes then at this point. And immediately Peter sets the record straight before they get any ideas that this was a Peter situation or that this was a John situation. He says in verse 12, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety, we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And what mighty evidence they had in front. What could they say? Even, Even the leaders later, when they see that, when they come, they figure out the tumult. They recognize the guy. They can't argue. This isn't like the blind guy, where's your parents in John chapter 9? They recognize the man. It stops their mouths. They have to recognize this is the finger of God. And a mighty evidence is given. And more so when they go to deal with Peter and to take this rude, unlearned fisherman and put him out, they get blasted with truth in such a way that they're left to take note that this man had been with Jesus. The testimony of Peter's strength of his wisdom wasn't his credentials so much as his abiding with Christ and Christ abiding with him. He spoke with a profundity and a clarity with the Word of God that startled them, and they could say nothing against it. The rulers had intended to end the problem of Christ, but now it appears Christ unseen appears to be multiplying and filling the streets with His teaching still. They thought they had gotten rid of the problem. The Christ has been dealt with. This this one who called himself the king of the Jews, this son of David, is no more. We're finished. And then now here's this event, and now there's a multiplication, and now there's 120, now there's 3,000, now there's 8,000. Now there's numbers growing, and the people are praising God in the square, and they're giving glory to our fathers and our forefathers in the name of this Jesus. What is going on? This didn't get fixed. This thing's exploded. This is not better. This is worse. Christ did say, it's better for you that I go away. (laughs) They were having to wrestle with the very real reality in Jerusalem that Christ was, in fact, raised from the grave. And though they couldn't put his finger on him to get a hold of him again, though they couldn't reach out and grab his beard anymore, though they couldn't reach out and strike the Holy One of Israel anymore, they were nonetheless at war with him. His spirit was very much in the midst, and he was showing himself sovereign ruler of all. And the closest they could get to touch him was touching his disciples, so they threatened them. But as one preacher said, he was a little stronger, I won't be quite as strong as he was, he said, those fools, whenever they got a hold of the Apostle Paul, they did everything they could, whatever had gotten in him, whatever had gotten in his head, whatever had made him this this, uh, hyper-intellectual one moment, now crazed foaming at the mouth, preacher of this gospel who wants persecuted. Whatever gotten into him, they couldn't drown it out of him. They couldn't beat it out of him. They couldn't threaten it out of him. They couldn't 
get him to a place to recant. But what those fools did not realize was they were not at war with Paul. They were at war with Christ in the man. And they couldn't drown it out of him because he was held fast. Christ is risen. The Spirit is given. And what is the testimony in the world? The body of Jesus Christ is in the earth even now, endued with power from on high. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? It is according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, the fullness of his body that fills all in all. This is the great power of the church. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The world will yet still have a confrontation with the resurrected Christ because he promised the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And he has given the church his spirit to confront the darkest hours, the hardest parts, the moments of reformation in world history, the the greatest inquisitions, the most terrifying iron curtains. He has made his church to thrive best where it makes the least sense among men. He has given the church his spirit to shut the mouths of men so that no flesh may glory in his presence. In the flesh, persecution seems to be a great hindrance to the work, but by the Spirit, it is actually instead a great opportunity for the world to see Christ in ways they would not nor could have seen otherwise. In 2 Corinthians 4, 10-11, Paul speaks, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. When persecution came, what could they do? In the flesh, nothing. So they prayed. And they sought the king. They requested and they asked for mighty evidences of his power mighty displays that he was still very here and very near. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Did God answer that prayer? Did they pray rightly? Was the Lord pleased with what they had petitioned him and asked him for? Did it seem good to the Spirit and to God to grant their supplication? Yes. Yes, and we have in front of us a verse that should fill each one of us today who are still Growing in understanding, growing in grace, growing in sanctification, growing in the knowledge of the Lord. A place to really think. 
Yes, we are baptized in the Spirit. Yes, we are sealed by the Spirit unto the day of redemption. Yes, He indwells us, and we do not have to get go get more of essence in the sense. We already have Him. What we are talking about here is an understanding of degrees. We are talking about a degree to which we have apprehended that which we've been apprehended for, which increases growingly. We're talking about a a sense of fullness of the Spirit of which the old guard was plenty comfortable to write about. But in these last days, because of the blasphemies and because of the abuses and because of the, the misrepresentations that are out there, oftentimes the pendulum is swung too far in the wrong direction and we have become, where they were guilty of abuse, we have become guilty of neglect. Where is our earnest praying for fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit? Where is our praying for an earnest expectation that very deity might invade again? Where is our expectation of what we saw not only in the book of Acts, but what we saw in the underground church of China, where the church there grew faster than it did in the book of Acts? What about in the days of Whitfield and in the days of Wesley, where you had two men preach to crowds of tens of thousands in a day and age in which religious affections were all but extinguished? The clergymen were corrupt. The taverns were full. The harlot houses and the houses of ill repute were full. The people had no desire for religion. It was a mock, it was a scoff, and it was a byword. There was no reality to it in those days. And yet the Lord stood up two men, not perfectly the same, not perfectly equal, not all right in every regard, but men full of the Holy Spirit's power. And the Lord used those two men to shake not just their hometown, but two continents. Entire villages, more or less, were swept into the kingdom in those days. Taverns were shut down because no one wanted to go in and get drunk anymore. It changed the culture. Everything was devastatingly upended and never the same in those days during that generation. I'm talking about an unshaking, gut-deep, real conviction that God meant every promise He ever gave His church. And a restlessness that we've gone to sleep without here in the West until we have it. I'm telling you, I, I believe it. There's an hour coming upon us here where all our little creature comforts are going to be destabilized and we're not going to know what to do with ourselves. And either we know what it means to commune with God in the secret place. Either we know what it means to throw off our demand for comfort, to throw off our demand to be accepted, to throw off our demand to be loved and tolerated and pleased by others and rally together as soldiers of the cross of Christ once again and hit our knees in desperate need of the refilling and empowering of the Spirit of Almighty God or we will not have enough oil to last the night. Many lampstands will go out. We're talking about real power to draw upon. We're talking about greater degrees of His Spirit. You know one of the qualifications to serve tables in a church like this? Seek you out seven men who are full of what? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, to be full of the Holy Spirit, to be trusted with the church finances and resources, to be able to serve the Grecian widows. Now, that would be a pointless qualification if there were no degrees of variation among the saints 
in the same way that there are variations of gifts, variations of callings, variations of administration. Seek you out a man, seven men, full, full of the Holy Spirit. What do we know of the tiny, tiny, short, little life of Stephen the deacon? We know a man who was very bold. He had confidence in the gospel he preached. And when he stood and had to give an account before those same religious leaders, with one of them consenting unto his death, he preached Christ so tangibly, so real, so powerfully, such great unction of the Holy Spirit, that they could not physically stand it. They literally broke the law. They took up stones. They didn't take them to the Romans. They broke Roman law. They picked up stones, shrieking just about, covering their ears, stoning him. Because the more he spoke, the more Christ rode forth in the chariot of the scriptures and of the preaching of that word, and they could not stomach it. They were like wild animals that had been backed into a corner with nowhere to flee. And at that moment, all they could do was silence him any way possible. How full of the Spirit was that, Stephen? So much so, not only did he look up and was gifted eyes to see his Christ, who was standing to receive his proto-deacon, but out from the mouth of Stephen's came words so Christ-like in a situation where they are not just words. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That same hymn I referred to earlier, the martyr first whose eagle eye could pierce beyond the grave, who saw his master in the sky and called on him to save. Like him with pardon on his tongue in midst of mortal pain, he prayed for them that did the wrong, who follows in his train. Where are the men serving tables full of the Holy Spirit today? who at a moment's notice can stand up with concrete in their back and give it the defense of the faith, even if it means their life. Not trusting in the flesh, not thinking, I'm a really bold, courageous person. I think I could do that. Yeah, you'll be the first to go down. We're talking desperate men who place no confidence in the flesh, know their weakness, and that's why they spend time in the secret place with their God, pleading for the power they do not have in and of themselves. The Apostle Paul, in closing, himself constantly sought this fresh supply, this fresh ability to preach, this fresh empowerment. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. If we will preach, preachers, if we will teach, teachers, let's do so as oracles of God. If we will sound out heavenly doctrines, then let us take heed to sanctify our hearts and our lips before the Lord and testify in a manner that gives honor and regard and reverence to the God and the doctrine of which we preach. 
There should never be a casual business as usual opening up of the scriptures in the church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth and the household and the abiding place and the dwelling place of the living God. We should be a people who are first arrested by, impressed upon, who have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And when we communicate, we recognize the high and awesome responsibility that has been commended unto us to communicate as oracles of God. And listen to me, mothers who are catechizing your children, fathers who are catechizing your children, those of you who think you are far away from the reach of this message, in your home, with your young ones, you are responsible as a means of grace to their souls when you communicate these doctrines doctrines do so with a sense of love and gravity and ensure that your marriages reflect the unity that the scriptures call for between a husband and a wife in the church of God. Brothers and sisters, communicate with one another as becometh saints. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Ensure that the way in which you communicate these gospel truths reflects the one who gave you your mouth and gave you the doctrine. There are the training grounds. Let us be faithful with the few things first and continue to plead for grace that he may incrementally and increasingly make us more and more faithful, whether it be our two talents or our five talents or our ten talents. May we be a people who recognize, as was prayed earlier, we are nothing, we have nothing, and we can do nothing without him. But if the Spirit be given and outpoured, if there be a fresh filling of his empowerment and graces, then the most terrifying tyrants of this world are no match for the exalted Christ. And at the hour of his choosing, when he emboldens and empowers his church, the church militant, it'll turn the world upside down, though they be few. That's our confidence, and that's our hope. These are the weapons of our warfare, that our life is an incrementally growing testimony of Christ, and that to have confrontation with us as the church is to have confrontation with Christ. We have a responsibility to guard our steps in that way because judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And if we don't take that seriously, if we're not careful to guard our hearts and we get swept away with this pragmatic church culture, flash and glitter and fluff and glitz and glam and marketing and all the stuff and all the noise, we have completely sidestepped not only the cross of Jesus Christ, but we've sidestepped the power of the resurrection. God help us to live in an actual dependence upon the grace of God according to the duty that every day requires. And let us not merely sit with these doctrines inert, lifeless on a back shelf of our theology somewhere, but may it be active and alive in the lives that we actually live May our understanding and our cognizance not outstrip our life and our obedience and the quality of the life we live. Amen. To God be the glory in the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray 
that you would truly minister grace to your saints. You would truly grant an outpouring of the Spirit. Lord, give us more than conferences. Give us more than Bible studies. Lord, we need preaching. We need the word sounded out regularly and continually with increasing depth. We need to grow in our understanding of these truths. But Lord, help us not to be forgetful hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Make us men and women after your own heart. Take us by your spirit where we cannot take ourselves. Water up to the ankles, then to the knees, then to the loins. Bring us into waters deep enough to swim in. Though we see your face but through a glass darkly, show us your face more clearly. Like Moses, show us your glory and grant your church a little reviving and great boldness. In Christ Jesus' holy and highly exalted name we do pray. Amen.